Amen. Thank you, Jeff. Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Welcome again. My name is Warren Wright. I'm a leader here at GFC. And as always, it's my privilege to speak from God's Word to you today. You heard the announcements, so I'm not going to go through that again. There's one extra announcement. Today is not the 23rd of August. Today is the 24th of August. The outline date is wrong. I made it yesterday when it was the 23rd of August. My apologies for that. The famous Sir Winston Churchill was legendary for his sharp wit and his snappy retorts, right? For example, he was at a dinner party once and some lady came up to him and said, you are drunk. He immediately responded with, I may be drunk, but you are ugly and in the morning I will be sober. Now, I've not told you the story just to get a quick laugh, though that's great. I've told you the story because that's the type of person I wanted to be when I was younger. I wanted to be the person with the sharp wit, the quick retorts, the, the ability to basically demolish anybody with your words, if you wanted to, right? So, you could use click, quick, clever words, but it got to the point where every conversation was a battle. You were trying to find the flaws in everyone's viewpoints. Every mistake was an open door for attack. You can imagine that relationships got a little brittle, a little strained. But it didn't matter, because no one could tell you otherwise, because you would demolish them, right? Even with their own words. So that's okay, no one could tell you otherwise. This is foolish idiocy. And I'll tell you how the story turns out at the end. But for now, I just want to point out that I was trying to be a sharp-tongued know-it-all. I was chasing a dream. I was imitating the idea of a quick-witted person. Today, we'll be studying the third epistle of the Apostle John, which is on page 662 of the Church Bible, if you want to get there so long. In it, we will see the strong command, imitate good. And so, I was not imitating good in trying to be the sharp-tongued know-it-all. And so the title of the sermon is very similar to the central idea. Who do you imitate? Who are your role models? Who do you admire? Who do you listen to? Who do you want to be when you grow up? Why is this important? Why it, does it matter who or what we imitate? We will see in our passage that it's a question of identity. Who you imitate shows who you are. So when I say, who do you imitate, I could be asking, who are you? Or, who do you want to be? Okay, so you say that you can answer the question of, who do you want to be? Or, who do you imitate? And there is a correct answer, by the way. The Bible tells us to imitate good and not evil. And who is good but Jesus. But, say you can answer that question. The next question is, how? How do I go about imitating good? This is the point of the sermon. How to imitate good. We will, in 3 John, see that there are three ingredients that go into imitating good. Any guesses as to what those ingredients are? They're the same three points we've been speaking about for quite a while in First and Second John. There's the idea of truth, knowing, confession of Jesus as the Christ. And there's love. And thirdly, obedience. So let me give you a bit of a roadmap for the whole sermon. First, we'll talk about a bit of context and background of our particular book of the Bible. We'll read it, and I'll make some observations about language and themes so we can set up our understanding of the text. And then I'll unpack those three points that I just mentioned into how to imitate good. 
and I hit some application, and I'll finish the story I started with. But before that, let's pray. Father, your word today speaks of imitating good. Lord, forgive us, for we chase after our other ideals all the time, so distracted by the things of the world. Thank you for the work of Christ, who redeems us from that, that we might seek true good in imitating him. Thank you for this church. Lord, we are your people. These are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I love them dearly. May this sermon be for their, be for our benefit, Lord. And may your great name be glorified as we delve into your word and your word changes us to be more like Jesus. Give us open ears and open hearts to hear your word and help me to preach faithfully and clearly. Amen. Today is a special day. Today is the day that we finish the epistles of the Apostle John. We hit third John. And we're done with John for a while. We've been with John for quite a while now, so today is a big day. And we're going to see why that matters in a moment. Next week, we start with a series on the church principles, basically who we are as a church, just in time for the new students so that they know who they're joining or potentially joining. So we studied the Apostle John's Gospel, and then we went through First and Second John. Give you a quick recap of where we've been. The Gospel was written to arouse the faith of the readers, basically so that they might know that they can have life through faith. The first epistle was written to deepen their assurance, so they might know that they had life. third epistle was written, we talked about it last week, remaining true to the gospel, defending against false teachers by loving one another. Okay, that's where we were and where we're going. Today's third John. Just a few words about the context. It's commonly accepted that the apostle John wrote this, this these epistles, these letters, somewhere between 75 and 100 AD from the city of Ephesus. That's all the history you need. All right, I think we're ready to read the text. But there are a few things I would like you to look for in this text as we read it. First one's very simple. Look at the characters in the story. Who would you like to imitate? Who's good, who's bad? And then look for those repeated themes of truth, love, and action. All right, you ready? Let's dive in. It's on page 662 of the Church Bible. <clears throat> Third John, verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that it may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in, your, in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, 
But I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Amen. Did you see in verse 11, the imitate good command? Before we tackle the three ingredients that go into how, let's talk a little bit about the language and themes. And as I said, hopefully these observations will help set up our understanding of the text. And we're now on first outline points, specific language and familiar themes. So language. Did you notice the abundance of names? In First and Second John, hardly a name was to be found anywhere in any of those letters. But in Third John, we have specific names and specific events. So why did John shift from general and abstract language in his first two epistles? And here in the third, he gets very specific and particular. I think this letter is a case study of the principles that he introduced in the first two letters. John is using the language and logic of the first two letters to address a specific situation. And his case study is our example. And together with his imperative of imitate good, the study, this case study, is a great opportunity to explore how to imitate good. All right, let's move on to themes. Did you see the themes of truth, love, and action? If you didn't, don't worry, we'll step through them in a bit. And remember that the first and to some degree the second epistle were about these three tests of assurance, is how we've called them so far. And so the repetition of these themes is just further in, a further indication that the third epistle is a case study of those themes, of those tests of assurance. But what were these tests about? I've mentioned assurance a few times. Assurance of what? Well, in 1 John, it was the assurance of eternal life. In 2 John, it was about a full reward and having God. Here in 3 John, look at verse 11, the themes of truth, love, and obedient action are about being from God. They are about your identity. They are about if you have even seen God. And what does he tie to this identity question? He ties that to imitating good. Which brings me back to the question I asked right in the beginning. How? How do we imitate good? And remember the purpose of this whole sermon is to figure that out from this text. Did you notice the main characters? There's Gaius, the guy doing it right. He's the main guy doing it right. The diatrophies, the guy doing it wrong, messing it up. And there's a little bit about Demetrius, who also seems to be doing it right. And in fact, that's how we're going to work, walk through the three points that I've mentioned. We're first going to look at Gaius, how he did it, how he is our good example, and then we'll look at diatrophies, how he did it, and how he is our bad example. Ready? All right, let's go. Point number one, so the second in sequence on your outline, imitating good starts with truth. If you look at the first four verses, you will see that truth is mentioned four times, once per verse. There's John's love for Gaius is founded in truth. The brothers testified to Gaius' truth. Gaius is walking in the truth, and John delights that his spiritual children are walking in the truth. So given how much emphasis John is placing on truth right up front, we should probably try and define what he means by truth here. Now, he doesn't give an explicit definition, but I think there's plenty of evidence from the context that we can piece it together. Let me give you just three facets of this truth that John reveals. Number one, the health of Gaius' soul is linked to truth. 
See in verse 2 and verse 3, the phrase, goes well with your soul, is linked to walking in the truth by the word for. So soul health is the result of this truth. So this truth better be some powerful stuff if it can make your soul healthy. Number two, look at verse four. In a book full of specifics and particulars, John gives one of his very few general statements. He says he has no greater joy than if his children, which probably means the people who believe the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he spoke, if his children walk in truth, he has no greater joy than that. This is a big statement. John is more concerned with this truth than anything else. He would rather everything else in your life go wrong and fall apart as long as you hold to this truth. If you won the lottery or achieved your lifelong dreams, these are not as wonderful as this truth. So according to John, this truth is the most important thing ever. Number three, third facet of this truth. Look at verse eight, fellow workers for the truth. Who are these workers that you would be joining as fellows? Look at verse 7. It says, They are the ones who have gone out for the sake of the name. What name? Given the context and who the author is, there can really be only one answer. Jesus Christ. So I hope that these three evidences have abundantly convinced you that this truth is the truth about Jesus Christ. It is the truth that was clearly defined in his gospel, John's gospel, and also in his first epistle. It is the gospel message that man has earned God's wrath because of man's sins against God. And also that Jesus, who is God's only son, came to suffer God's wrath on man's behalf. And that Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience and gifts that perfect record to those who believe in him so that they can have a restored relationship with their creator, with God. This is the truth that made Gaius' soul healthy. This is the truth that John considers more important than anything else. This is the truth that caused men and women to leave their homes and go and spread this truth to others, so that they too might be free from the slavery of sin. Let me give you one last textual emphasis on truth. Look at verse 3. The brothers came and testified to your truth. Isn't that odd? We see later that what Gaius actually did was that he aided the brothers, the traveling missionaries, when others didn't. But instead of commending Gaius's hospitality, John commends his walking in the truth. I think John does this on purpose. He does this to show us what was behind the hospitality, what the hospitality was founded upon. John did this because imitating good starts with truth. Okay, we looked at Gaius. Let's move on to Diotrephes. And after that, we will see what this truth business has to do with imitating good. <coughs> so look at verse 9. <clears throat> I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So we don't know for sure what document that was John referring to. Perhaps it was Second John that didn't get through the church. I don't know. But the point is that Diotrephes does not acknowledge John's authority. This is a big deal. John is not just anybody. 
He's a premier disciple of Jesus. He's the guy you cancel all your appointments to go and meet, listen to. My friends, this is where Diotrephes goes wrong. He rejects the bearer of truth, and so he rejects the truth. He refuses to hear and receive the very words that would bring health to his soul and cause him to bring health to the souls of others. And we see it play out because instead of being a life giver, we see that he is a force of division later on as he divides communities by kicking people out of the church. Imitating good starts with the truth and Diotrephes started by rejecting the truth. Why did he do this? Why would someone reject the truth? Why would someone reject soul health? Well, John gives us a hint. Look again at verse 9. He says that Diotrephes likes to put himself first. Thinking you are number one is a terrible idea. It leads to death. In fact, it's the original sin. Way back in Genesis, which we studied as a church a little while back, the temptation of Eve was all about rejecting the idea of being number two. Diotrephes rejected truth because he thought he was number one. By contrast, Gaius accepted the gospel truth that he was not number one, not number two. In fact, acceptance of the gospel means that you acknowledge that without Jesus, you are a condemned criminal, a traitor. You're not number one, not number two. You don't even get a number. But the glory of the gospel is that because of Jesus, you are co-heir of the Son of God. You get to be number one because Jesus is number one. This is crazy. It's wonderful. blows my mind. That's the glory of the gospel, that God would do that for us, the condemned criminals, the traitors. So what does all this truth business have to do with imitating good? Let me give you an example from my own life. This past Monday was my birthday. And my wife and I were planning to go out for dinner in the evening. But a friend contacted me and said he needed some help with something. And I mentioned that I had plans and it was my birthday. And he graciously said, okay, don't worry, go enjoy your birthday. But I was conflicted because I want to be there for my friends. But I also want to enjoy my birthday. What to do? I wanted to do good, but who's good? My good? My friend's good? When I shared my struggles with my beautiful, wonderful, wise wife, she asked me a really annoying question. <laughs> she said, what does God want you to do? This was annoying because the answer was really easy. God calls me to prefer others over myself. He calls me to be self-sacrificial. And so, with prayer and death to my own desires, I resolved to offer my birthday evening to my friend and called them back and said I was willing to come. Now, he again graciously refused, but the point of the story is that I was faced with a situation wherein I wanted to do good, but I was conflicted because of my own selfishness and because I had a lack of understanding of what good I should do. The solution came when my wife pointed me to truth. She pointed me to Jesus, who sacrificed everything for me. And because of his sacrifice, I can sacrifice for others. My time my desires, even my life. I was only able to imitate good after I was reminded of the truth. What about you? Are your actions informed by the truths of the Bible? Are they founded on the gospel? Do you have people in your life 
who will point you to Christ when you are in need of direction? Do you point others to Jesus when they ask you for help? Because actions that are motivated by fashion, social pressure, habits, tradition, even affection or feeling or anything else, if they do not line up with the truths of the gospel, then they do not produce the kind of good that shows you are from God. Because they did not have the correct foundation of truth. Remember that successful imitation of good starts with the truth of the gospel. Okay, so far we have seen that John emphasizes the truth up front, and that Gaius, the guy who started with truth, he is imitating good. And Diotrephes, the guy imitating evil, he started by rejecting the truth. Now let's consider adding love to the mix. We're on the second numbered point. Number two, truth leads to love on your outline. As before, let's start with Gaius. Look at verse 6. He testif- the brothers testified to your love before the church. It's interesting that the two facts that were testified about Gaius were truth and love, verse 3 and verse 6. I commented before in this oddity because testimony is normally about external evidences about actions, and here it's about an internal reality. I suggested that the point was that John was indicating what internal realities caused the good actions. John was pointing to foundation, and so we can say that Gaius' hospitality was founded on truth and love. We can also glean more about John's usage of love from seeing how he expresses his love to Gaius. John calls him beloved four times, and in verse 1 he says, who I love in truth. Now, I don't think, based on how truth is used in this passage, that John is just expressing his sincerity. He's not just saying, no, I really love you, it's not a lie. He's saying that his love is founded on truth. That truth is the nature of his love. It is the source of his love. It is gospel truth that unites believers together as a family. John's love for Gaius was in truth. It was informed by truth. And so truth leads to love because if the truth tells us that Jesus died for us and loved us enough to die for us, and if the truth tells us that we are supposed to love others as Jesus loved us, then the truth leads to love. Okay, let's look at diatrophies. Look at verse 10 and 11. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also steps, sorry, stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. How much evidence of love do you see in this? How about the talking wicked nonsense? Was that loving? Diotrephes is not privately disagreeing with John. No, he's been telling others. He has been spreading wicked nonsense. Wicked nonsense, vicious, malicious, baseless, evil, without substance, rubbish. Doesn't sound very loving to me. We could look at all the other things Diotrephes did and see his obvious lack of love in those actions too. But for now, consider this. The first action pointing to a lack of love was the spreading of slander, a dealing in falsehood a lack of truth. It shouldn't be surprising because if gospel truth leads to love, then lies lead to hate, which is slander, as an example. So how does knowing that truth leads to love 
help us to imitate good? In one sense, this is easy to answer, because by experience we know that we can do things that we love far better than we can do things that we can hate, right? You eat chocolate more easily than taking out the trash. So all we need is love? But here's the trick. You can't go out and acquire love by itself. You can't magically conjure up love for something or somebody. Truth leads to love. The love that motivates is informed love. In 1 John 4 verse 19, we see that we love because he first loved us. The kind of love John is talking about is sourced in the truth that God loved us first by sending his son Jesus to die for us. But there's a caveat and there's a warning. Truth is to love is actually a little too strong because it's not the facts that make up the truth that give you love. You can't generate love by just getting the right truth. Meditation on truth alone will not produce love. Let me give you an illustration. The Bible, right? Hopefully most of you have one on, on your laps. We do not worship this book. We do not worship the facts of this book. Our mental acceptance of the information in this book does nothing for our souls. Rather, our hope is in God and in the saving work of Jesus. This book is here to tell us about God. It's here to tell us about what Jesus did. This book is simply a doorway. Very important doorway. Meditating on the truths of the gospel, studying what the Bible says, is like opening the door so that God's Spirit, who is in believers, can shine God's love through the Christian. So a greater and deeper understanding of Jesus' love for you normally results in an increase in your love for others. In order to get this love, get a greater and deeper understanding of Jesus' love for you. Read about it in the Bible. Read about it in other good books. Talk about it with your friends. But the best way to increase love is to pray. After all, if the love that we need is sourced in God's love for us, go to the source. Talk to God. Ask God for more love for others. And then start praying for others. Love will follow. Look at verse 2. John has been praying for Gaius. I pray that it may go well with you and that you may be in good health. Prayer is key. In fact, the action of praying is part of imitating good. It, need, it leads naturally to our next point, which is all about action. We've seen how imitating good starts with truth, and truth leads to love. Now let's look at how truth and love lead to obedient action. It's the fourth point, or number three on your outline. Truth and love lead to obedient action. As usual, let's start with Gaius, the guy doing it right. What actions does he perform? Basically, he made an effort to help traveling Christian workers. The text gives hints as to what this involved. There was welcoming them, supporting them by meeting their needs. Support was most likely a combination of sharing his house and food and amenities as well as financial support. Gaius, sorry, Gaius is a good example of imitating good. All right, let's move to diatrophies. What actions does he perform? We've already looked at his rejection of John's authority and his slander, but there is more. He refuses to welcome the traveling missionaries. Now, culturally and contextually, it is evident that he is not refusing to say hello. 
This refusal is a refusal to give aid to people who need support, and they need it because they're not supported by their audience. This is a refusal to help the very people who are supposed to be on your team, in your family. But the atrophies goes further. He must have been a church leader because he uses his authority to, his, his authority to do two more things. He stops people from helping them, and he kicks people out of church if they helped these traveling Christian workers. Wow, not a nice guy. Not a good guy. In fact, look at the next verse. John immediately says, do not imitate evil. I think John is holding up diatrophies as an example of imitating evil. But what foundation did Gaius's good actions come from? What foundation did Diotrephes' evil actions come from? I think the point of this whole book is that John is making the statement, this point. Gaius is founding in the gospel truth, led to love, which led to good actions. And Diotrephes' founding in falsehood led to a lack of love, which led to evil actions. And so the point of the sermon is the same thing. Imitate good by starting with truth and love. Now, before we move on to application, let me give you just one last link between truth and good actions from the text, just in case you aren't convinced yet. Look at verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in your actions for these brothers. John calls Gaius' actions faithful. This is important because it tells us why Gaius did what he did. After all, there are many reasons you could do a good thing for a bad reason. Con artists, spies, some politicians, easy examples. But John tells us Gaius' actions were faithful. Faithful to what? Well, remember, John just spent the last four verses talking about truth. So, and then he immediately talks about Gaius being faithful. So, I think we can confidently say that he's been faithful to the truth. I think this is a really cool idea. Gaius' good actions were not isolated acts of kindness. No, they were acts that found their source, their motivation, in something bigger, something greater. Gaius' good actions were faithful to the truth of the gospel. Gaius' good actions were simply an extension of his adherence to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you look at verse 5, it goes further and commends John's love. So we can amend the previous statement and say that Gaius's love for others and his good actions are simply an extension of his adherence to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's move to application, which is the last point in the outline, by simply turning the subject around and saying, if you are a Christian and you claim to adhere to the gospel of Jesus Christ, does your faith result in love of others and good actions? And just to be as clear as possible, truth, love, actions, none of these make you a Christian. They just show if you are one. And what happens if your love and your actions are not faithful to the gospel? Don't despair. Repent and return to the gospel. It starts with truth and it restarts with truth. But if you're not a Christian, then here, 1 John 5, verse 12, where it says that whoever does not have Jesus does not have life. If you want life, 
Start with Jesus. Start with the truth of the gospel. Love and good works will follow. So how does one imitate good? It starts with getting truth and love. But what comes next? There are so many ways to imitate good. Getting truth by drinking deeply from the fount of God's word and praying for one another. These are already two ways we've looked at about how to imitate good. But what else? Last week, Dan taught us about loving one another. And he gave us three examples of loving one another, of doing good works. There was through quantity time, not just seeking quality time with one another, spending time. There's breaking down of walls of division to really include everybody. There's serving one another through acts that meet each other's needs. In fact, anything you do that is saturated in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the love for others is almost certain to be good. But let me give you two more examples, and they're straight from the text. Number one, imitate Gaius. Support missionaries. This is really simple. Do you give some of your money to missionaries, to Christian workers? I'm not going to unpack from the text exactly who and how, and there are, and you should look at that and read other passages of Scripture that tell you how and when and under what circumstances to support Christian workers. I'm just going to stick to this question of, do you support Christian workers? If you don't, why not? The Bible tells us to, and we have this promise of we get to be fellow workers with them by supporting them. It's a great calling. Examples of this are many. I mean, we could name this church, Grace Fellowship Church. We could name campus ministries like Disciple Makers and others. What about the student interns who give their summers to go and travel the world and share the gospel? There are many, many more examples that I could give. In fact, if there's, if there's a need out there where the gospel of Christ can make a difference, which is pretty much everywhere, then there's probably some faithful Christian trying to do that, and they need your help. And if there isn't some Christian doing it, and it's close to your heart, maybe you should. Let me give you the second example. Don't imitate diatrophies. Don't be someone who likes to be number one. It's a terrible idea. And there are so many bad examples out there who are just like diatrophies. Let me just mention two. We live in an academic culture, which I love. I'm a physicist. But many academics think of themselves as number one because they are smarter and more intelligent. They know more than everyone around them. And it can be tempting to want to be like them because they are smart, they are successful, they are highly regarded, and sometimes they're very powerful, especially when they determine if you pass a course or not. But this is a terrible starting point. You are not, number one, only God is, only Jesus is. How about a second example? What about the pop culture we live in? Our celebrities, our sports, music, movie, even political celebrities. It can be... You can be deceived into desiring what they have because they are famous. They have money. They have popularity. And then you might start imitating them. And this rarely leads to any good. And so my challenge is just to be aware of who you admire, who you listen to, and think about why you admire them and see if that lines up with the truth of the gospel. 
As a concrete example, let me return to the story I started with, and then we'll be done for the day. Remember, I, I, I admired the idea of being a quick-witted person because then people would admire me and I would be number one. I admired it, so I started imitating it. By the way, I'm not saying all quick-witted people are evil. Just my version was. But God loved me and loves me too much to let me get away for that, get away with that for too long. And here's how he did it. One day, I got invited to dinner with a friend, but this was a, a friend outside of my normal social circle, so I didn't know anybody else at this dinner. And one of the people there was a youth pastor who had a very strange habit. The only words that came out of this man's mouth were encouraging, uplifting, kind, generous, and complimentary. He never teased, and if someone else did, he didn't laugh, even for innocent things. In fact, it seemed forced sometimes. It seemed a little fake. Most of the time, it just seemed very awkward. At one point, someone challenged him on this. And I forget his actual words, but his explanation changed the way I thought about things in a dramatic way. Let me give you the, the gist of what he said. He said that he believed that how we speak to one another should be informed by the Bible. And he believed that the Bible instructed him to only use words to do good to others. And he wanted to follow this example. It blew my mind. Right? It should be easy, but I hadn't figured that out before caused me to seriously question what I had been attempting to accomplish with my words. What example had I been seeking to imitate? Was it from the Bible? No. It was some version of popularity that in hindsight didn't even make a lot of sense. This little example from my life shows the power of imitation. I was seeking to be the smart, quick-witted person. I was chasing after an ideal. The youth pastor was also seeking to be something. He was chasing after the ideal of being obedient to Christ. My imitation wasn't perfect, neither was his, but the difference was that I was nasty with a future of at best loneliness, and he was awkward with a future of at worst holiness. Let me repeat that. I, the difference was that I was nasty with a future of at best loneliness, and he was awkward with a future of at worst holiness. What was the difference? It was what truth we started from. In summary, hear John's command. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. How does one imitate good? It starts with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This truth leads to a deep love for others. And truth and love naturally lead to obedient, faithful action. Let us pray.